competitive markets could be a wonderful thing to contribute to social welfare and prosperity. But if they're structured wrong in order to only benefit um, capital and investment in people with wealth, then you get the divisions. And I think that's contributing to a huge amount of dislocation in the United States, whether people recognize it or not. The Empire's New Clothes is back. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Just want to say thanks so much for joining us and watching all these videos and learning with us as we go on this adventure of trying to figure out what's going on with the U.S. If you like what we're doing, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. I know you get tired of hearing this on every YouTube video, but honestly, this is the best thing that help us share this with as many people as possible so we can keep doing this every week. We're about to speak with Richard Ford. He's a professor at the Stanford Law School, and he focuses on anti-discrimination law. That's a mouthful. So he has a really interesting book that just came out called Dress Codes, and it looks at how fashion and our spoken, unspoken dress codes impact power dynamics. It may sound unconnected, but it's actually very rooted in what's going on today with America. We dive into the divisions in our society politically, and then we look at how these unspoken rules impact power and the structures that are in place. So I hope you enjoy. Rich, well, thank you so much for joining today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I've been really looking forward to speaking with you because lately I've been speaking with a lot of um, financial practitioners and market speculators and hedge fund folks, but you come from a very different world from what I've been speaking with lately. You've got a background in law, and so maybe walk us through a little bit of what makes Richard Ford tick, what got you interested in law, and kind of a bit of that arc of what brought you to the stuff that you do today. Well, I'm interested in law because I I got into legal scholarship by looking at things like low-income housing. I started off when I was in law school looking at um, rent control in the city of Cambridge and trying to think about the way you could create a community with, um, you know, diverse, uh, not only racially diverse, but also a diverse population in terms of incomes and jobs and professions and a what was happening in Cambridge, which is true in many American cities, is that the um, the working class and uh, people who weren't wealthy were being pushed out by rising rents. Um, over time, I started to see connections between those kinds of issues and all sorts of other things. And I'd always been interested, of course, also in the racial justice issues. Um, but um, so I wanted to dig deeper into areas in which the law could either help to um, improve social equity or mm-hmm. also look at those cases where the law was making the problem worse um, mm-hmm. in the hope of promoting legal reform to uh, to lead to a better society. So over my career, I've looked at constitutional law, um, employment discrimination, local government law, things like zoning and the way local governments are structured, the way territorial boundaries are created, all of those things um, to, to, with an eye to some of these social equity and social justice uh, issues. And, you know, maybe the biggest uh, thing that combines all of the things that I'm doing, because it's kind of a, a, a wide-ranging set of uh, interests, Certainly. is 
um, it's it's the relationship between these kind of big social justice questions or, or, or big political questions and everyday life, things that happen to people, you know, day to day. So local government, um, for instance, affects people, you know, where they send their kids to school, uh, you know, whether they can get to work, whether their environment is one that's healthy or toxic in terms of the environment. Um, and so my latest project, Dress Codes, is also about one of these day-to-day issues. Everyone gets up every day. They get dressed. Um, and sometimes they're judged, um, either positively mm-hmm. or negatively based on what they're wearing, can affect their career prospects. A lot of legal disputes, um, a surprising number, involve clothing and dress codes. And so I got interested in that and wanted to look at kind of the cultural and social history surrounding uh, those questions. Yeah, and – I can't wait to dive into that a little later because I think, you know, stumbling upon your work and, and uh, reading some of the stuff about your book, it's, it's really, I never thought about these things. And, and so we're going to get to that. Uh, but before I'd like to pull back a bit and ask, in, in your perspective, it doesn't have to be right or wrong, but just in your perspective, what's the fundamental driver of America's division today? Like, how did we get here? Well, there are several things. Uh, race is clearly one of them, but I certainly don't want to say it's the only one. Um, the United States has a long, um, ugly, and unresolved history of racial discrimination and racial hierarchy. There's a sense in which um, the rejection of uh, slavery was never complete. And as a consequence, you got, um, you know, rather than a true reconstruction of the nation, which was the promise after the Civil War, um, you had backsliding, you had Jim Crow, and to some mm. extent, in a, in a in a significant way, we're still sort of fighting the Civil War um, in a cold mm. form. And I think that's one of the divisions that's continuing to confront us. I'd say the other large one has to do with, um, for lack of a better term the struggle between popular um, I, I guess populism is not quite the word I'm looking for but the, the, the struggle between um, an egalitarian society that serves uh, uh, everyone and plutocracy for mm-hmm. lack of a better term um, the the uh, policies and laws that benefit a privileged few at the expense of everyone else um, I, you know in the radical tradition you describe this as a problem of capitalism. Um, but I, all, I think in a progressive tradition, you could describe it in terms of a, um, a, 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 a capitalist system that's not in, inappropriately structured. And so hmm. it's not structured to benefit everyone. It could be. Um, competitive markets could be a wonderful thing to contribute to social welfare and prosperity. But if they're structured wrong in order to only benefit um, capital and investment and people with wealth, then you get the divisions, um, the, by, the, the, the separation, um, polarization of income. Um, and I think that's contributing to a huge amount of dislocation in the United States, whether people recognize it or not. Do you see these forces as more of a cycle of the ebbs and flows of capitalism and a republic? Or do you see, when you look into the future, do you see it more as an existential threat of, you know, this, this could be bigger than just a wave of inequality that's going to wash over us and it'll, it'll resolve on its own? Uh, I'm not sure. I do think... There, there certainly are waves, and there's certainly reason for um, 
optimism that uh, society can, uh, that, you know, that our our society has seen um, crises mm-hmm. in the past and has come out of them um, stronger. And, um, and so, you know, in many ways, the political divisions that we're experiencing today are not greater than those that we experienced at other periods in American history, um, you know, the Great Depression or the 1960s even. However, um, there is the looming concern that uh, we've kind of run out of a certain amount of, of slack, for lack of a better hmm. word, and environmental collapse is probably the largest one. This seems to be, this really is an existential threat. And so much of what has fueled our economy and our society in the past has been the ability to exploit the natural environment. Um, you know, that's no longer viable uh, as an approach to fueling a society. And it's a really unanswered question and a profound one what happens next when we now know that we can't continue to exploit the natural environment in the way that we have in the past we need to retool and that's going to require some fundamental rethinking right now um uh, there's a lot of resistance to doing that kind of rethinking and that's worrisome so do you do you think we need a crisis to get us back on track or are we going to kind of just slowly work back towards some kind of median? Well, I hope we can work back. I wouldn't say work back mm-hmm. towards some kind of median because I don't think that the solution isn't going back to to, to, to something yeah, that we had course, in the past. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of people feel that way. Like, if only we could get back to some happier moment. But that's, yeah. we, we need to move forward to something new. Um, going, I suppose I meant like an like an equilibrium, I think would be a an better equilibrium. way to like work. Yes. towards an equilibrium. Well, I, I hope that it's possible for us to make the changes as a society that we need to make. And, you know, this is in terms of the natural environment. It's in terms of polarization of income. It's in terms of our relationship to um, other parts of the world that are less privileged. Mm-hmm. And things like race relations, um, improving gender equity. There are a lot of changes that are happening. And I think one of the things that we see with the polarization is that so many of these issues that have been um, kind of suppressed for a long time are really coming to the surface and it's no longer possible to suppress them. Um, but I hope that we can work toward a better and more sustainable future without mm-hmm. falling into crisis. Um, I, I'm not confident. I have to say that that's possible, but I certainly hope so. Certainly hope so. <laughs> Um, so last week I spoke with the fellow Mike Green and he suggests that America actually might be on the cusp of transitioning from a republic to a, a true empire where power is consolidated into a individual or a regime. And he points to a similar parallel of being Rome when it transitioned from a republic into an empire. As a, as a lawyer, do you see our government in need of evolutionary change to get out of the quagmire we're stuck in or do we need a revolutionary change to revitalize because people people have changes they want everyone is not happy and so that just to reiterate the question can we get there through evolutionary change because the legend the 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 government's not enacting the um the tools it should be 
or do we need revolutionary change? I think in some respects we need profound change. And uh, yeah, I mean, to, to give a few examples from the legal perspective, uh, we have a, uh, a, an electoral system that is drifting further and further away from democracy in a variety of respects. If you look at some of the legislation that's being passed in um, places like Texas, where um, the, the proposal is to essentially allow the party in power to control the the um, outcome of the national mm-hmm. election rather than the people who are voting. Um, and it's essentially what's happening in some of these states. That is a change that if it's allowed to happen, will undermine democracy. It will mean that in the next presidential election, um, the, the election won't be democratic. It will be an election determined by oligarchs um, or uh, a minority, uh, an elite few. And that's a horrifying prospect. That's a prospect that um, does threaten to undermine the country as we know it. And, And in order to avoid that, we do need significant and substantial changes in the structure of government and the relationship between um, you know, it, 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 the things like the Electoral College, for instance, need to be reformed. And that's uh, more and more obviously true. That would be a profound change, arguably a radical change in the way our government's structured. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationship of an institution like the Supreme Court to um, – popular democracy. This is something that people are now beginning to talk about. You hear um, even mainstream politicians talking about things like court packing, which would have seemed to be um, you know, kind of unthinkable just a, a, a few years ago. Now people are thinking maybe we need court packing. I, I think looking at those kind of institutional relationships with um, an eye to making what, what, what might have once at one time been considered radical reform uh, is necessary. We we are at a crisis point with respect to those kinds of things, and that goes to the nature of our democracy. Um, we need change in order to ensure that we have something that's a democracy in fact rather than a democracy in name only. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there are other, you know, again, the polarization of wealth, this is something that is worsening and will continue to worsen unless something quite profound is done with respect to how um, our economy is structured. And these are changes that, um, you know, that I think many people would consider to be radical, but a growing number of people are seeing are simply necessary. Yeah, that's an, that's a great point. Do you, do you think about 2024 at all? Or is it kind of like, oh, just enjoying the, the, the lull between... Brief. Well, I do think about 2024, but I try, you know, it's been such a exhausting past few years, um, Mm -hmm. certainly since the election of Donald Trump, um, that I think we all need a little bit of a psychological break. Um, But yes, I mean, 2024 does loom in the distance and um, I believe it will be a profound test for the republic. Uh, it, it is. It certainly isn't inconceivable that things could go in a very bad direction in the next presidential election. And so, in in your network and your friends and colleagues and peers, 
is is that kind of a similar feeling of just yeah, twenty twenty four could be pretty crazy. Someone could actually be trying to grab power. Um, but we're just going to enjoy this a little now or are people like really looking forward and, you know, man, we need to talk about this today so we don't end up in dire straits or. Oh, I think people definitely are saying we need to talk about it today. I mean, when I say we need a psychological break, um, it's yes, but at the same time, I think lots of people are focused mm-hmm. on ensuring that um, democracy is preserved. Uh, in the next presidential mm-hmm. election, and certainly many of my colleagues are working hard on elect, um, voting rights and ensuring that the electoral process is safeguarded, and you know, trying to push back some of the uh, worst um, worst ideas um, that are being advanced by the right in um, you know these kind of. Um, voter suppression laws and um, partisan takeovers of the uh, electoral process in various states. A lot of people are working on that, uh, you know, pretty much nonstop. So I think there is a real sense of um, alarm about what could happen and, um, and, and, and a lot of energy devoted to making sure that the worst doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about your book a bit and, and you, you, you briefly touched on it earlier, but how did a lawyer become interested in the power dynamics related to fashion? Well, I um, teach, among other things, employment discrimination and um, constitutional law. And it's surprising how many disputes involved dress codes. Uh, people who would uh, sue their employer over a dress code that, for instance, maybe required women to wear makeup um, or or high heels or, or mm-hmm. a dress code that prohibited African-Americans from wearing um, hairstyles that were suitable to their hair texture. Um, there are dress code disputes every year in high schools. And so I started to see all of this litigation around dress codes and thought that um, the legal opinions were missing something important about why this was uh, you know, an ongoing concern and why it was important to people, so important that they'd be willing to risk losing their jobs or, you know, getting into trouble of various kinds. Um, and so I wanted to take a, ho- a closer look at that. And in order to do that, I needed to look historically. And so I wound up tracing the history hmm. back to really the um, the early Renaissance of the late Middle Ages at a time when clothing, the technologies around clothing changed and allowed it to be much more expressive that this is a moment that some historians describe as the birth of fashion. Um, But, you know, when I say fashion, I'm not talking about, you know, fancy clothes on, uh, you know, Fifth Madison Avenue or something like this. I am talking about what everyday people wear and feel, um, you know, a sense of community, a sense of connection, a sense of psychological comfort in wearing. And this is true. It's not just the rich. And indeed, many of the most interesting and innovative fashions come from the streets. And they come from um, historically disempowered groups and who are using fashion as a way to assert themselves in a society that sometimes treats them with contempt. And or they're using fashion as a way to push back against illegitimate hierarchies. And so those are the things I was interested in because it's a form of communication and a form of expression and a form of art that everyday people 
participate in all the time. You know, an everyday person may not write a, a symphony or um, or a novel or paint a painting that winds up in the um, in a museum or, or a gallery. But everyday people do get dressed and they think about mm-hmm. it and they care about it. And it's, so that was a history that I found quite moving when I got um, when I got involved in researching it. So it'd be. Were you thinking of these things in some loose context before? And then the curiosity of, oh man, there's so many, so much litigation over fashion. And it kind of like connected these thoughts or it began with these court cases and it just was this rabbit hole of, whoa, whoa. Well, you know, I had always, I mean, I've always been kind of interested in fashion for just personally. Um, uh-huh. And and um, the example, my father cared a lot about what he wore. He was one of the first African-Americans working in many of the environments where he worked. And I could mm-hmm. see that the his mode of dress was an important, not only for his own sense of self, but also as a way to uh, you know, kind of uh, demand dignity in environments that in some instances would try to withhold that from him. And mm-hmm. so I think I learned that uh, that as a child and saw that growing up and saw that um, clothing could be important, not trivial, not superficial, but something that had real, um, could have real profound significance. I got interested in it and, you know, of course also had fun with it as kids do when they're experimenting with things. Um, so yeah, I was always interested in it. And then when I started, um, studying and teaching things like employment discrimination, I was surprised to see how many disputes there were around fashion. I was never satisfied with the way the courts addressed those disputes. I mean, sometimes they came to what I thought was the right decision. Sometimes they came to what I thought was the wrong decision. But the discussion always seemed a little um, flat and Hmm. incomplete. And so that's when I wanted to start to do the historical research. But yeah, I always had that 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 interest even before looking at the legal issues. Interesting. I just finished watching the series Halston on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen ah, that. right. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Well, uh, it would be fun to like sit there and watch it with you because you could probably have so much great commentary of, oh, well, this is like important for these reasons. But uh, I mean, I love anything Ewan McGregor does. So it was uh, it was a fun one. Um, but so maybe walk me through in your, in your father's experience, cause that's quite interesting. And, you know, as a parallel, we see that with, uh, Kamala Harris today, there was just this big blow up over the clothes that she was wearing on the cover of, um, I don't remember the magazine, but it's like oh, Vogue, this, right. Yeah. Yeah. This right. like very recent thing that's going on as completely to your point it's this a uh, woman, woman of color, as the vice president, and we're talking about her clothes. Um, yeah, right. And so, and so, maybe walk me through a little bit of I don't know if you remember any stories, but like, or just some self reflection you've had as an adult on your father in that position, going into a place where he is a person of color in probably all white other men as well, like. Mm-hmm. What were his decisions of why to wear this and why not to wear this, and why did he see that as important? Well, he always wore a uh, a sport jacket and tie to work. He was a university um, professor and administrator, um, but it, 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 we grew up in Fresno, California. It's very hot. Um, in the summers. And so almost <laughs> everyone else would wear a short sleeve shirt during the summer. It's 100 degrees outside 
Um, and he'd put on a jacket and tie, and we would ask him, "You, why are you wearing a jacket? It's a hundred degrees out. Nobody wears a jacket." Dad, um, what are you and, doing? You know, yeah. And he would say, <laughs> "This is, you know, I, you, you, this is how professionals dress." And the, it, it's a, you, the implication there was that's important, regardless of what other people are doing. But also, I started to see it's important for him. Um, as as an African American to insist on a level of dignity, you know, it went along with other things. Like he would insist that people who didn't know him called him Mister Ford or Professor Ford or Doctor mm-hmm. Ford. Um, that you know, we're not on a first name basis yet. And over time, I began to see the reason he did that. Um, you know, it wasn't snobbery and it wasn't um, it wasn't pulling rank. It was to ensure that. Everyone understood the dignity that he was due in his position in a context in which otherwise some people would try to undermine it. Um, that was important. And so the clothing went along with that. It was, a, I think, an assertion of self-respect and dignity. So that's one example. And that's, um, but historically, in the course of my research, I could see it so many times in the context of social justice struggles, what people were wearing mattered. It mattered. During the civil rights movement of the March on Washington, that people came in their Sunday best. People dressed in their Sunday mm. best to sit in at lunch counters. And you, you think from today's perspective, you might say, well, that's crazy. They knew they were going to be assaulted. They were going to be attacked by uh, racist mobs or police. There was one instance I described where people sat in at a lunch counter, you know, in their Sunday best, and a racist mob threw, you know, ketchup and, and mustard and condiments at them. Um, so why are they wearing their Sunday best? And, but the reason was this assertion of dignity. And when you look historically at some of the, 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 the customs, but also laws around clothing, African Americans were um, forbidden to wear refined clothing at times in American history. There was a law in place in South Carolina called the Negro Act, which for, um, forbade African Americans from wearing anything but the most uh, you know, coarse and work-like clothing. And so that idea that a black person who's well-dressed was a threat to the social mm-hmm. order, a threat to white supremacy, is something that carried through. Um, and even after these laws were taken off the books, black people would be attacked if they were dressed too well, they were, they were seen as uppity or putting on airs. So when you get to the civil rights movement and they're wearing their Sunday best, this is a way to assert the dignity and the social status that came with that clothing. And then later, um, subsequent generations used fashion in other ways. So later you get a new generation who's wearing workwear. They're wearing overalls. They're wearing um, you know, workers' uh, shirts. To, in solidarity with the people they're trying to organize. So they said, look, we're not going to go for the Sunday best thing. We think um, the way to relate to sharecroppers or people working in factories is to kind of dress like them. But they still cared about it. So when you looked at the – if you look at some of the photos of um, – People like the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, SNCC, mm-hmm. and they're wearing the overalls. They're all wearing similar clothing. They, they made a point of it. It wasn't just wear whatever you want, um, even though it might look like that if you're not paying close attention. Then you get to something like the Black Panthers. You know, they had a look. They had a minister of culture in the Black Panthers, and they thought a lot about it. Oh, and really? People, Yes. Yeah. So they, they, huh. culture was a big part of that social movement, and they were more explicit about this than any of the other racial justice movements. But we'd even say, you know, until we um, can 
take pride in our own appearance, our own physical facial structure, our hair. We're not going to overcome white supremacy that as long as you're trying to look like the white person with long flowing hair or blue eyes or you know, that you're, you, that's a psychological impediment to our liberation. And so they created a whole kind of Afrocentric aesthetic with the, the, the natural hair is very chic. It was very, um, you know, it, it was very savvy in terms of its um, aesthetics, but it was done with real purpose. Uh, so all of these are examples of the way fashion really mattered to um, to, to social justice. Yeah, so interesting. And have you turned your eye, like this type of eye, towards a lot of the um, protests we've seen in the last, especially last summer? Uh, yeah. It was like when it was all peaking. Because um, we have, I mean, I could list off all the different names, but yeah. have you have you looked at these groups and and thought about you know the clothing they wear because a lot of them do look very similar in in their own collective. Yes, I mean it's interesting. Like when well, when the Black Lives Matter protest first started, you 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 had sort of an outpouring, and everyone's coming out of the pandemic. They've been all quarantined. And so people are wearing sort of whatever. And, and in a sense, that sent its own statement that, you know, this is an out, a kind of spontaneous outpouring of people from all walks of life who see the problem of police violence and, and, and are mm-hmm. not willing to stand for it any longer. But also over time, you started to a transition. Get, yeah. There was a transition, exactly, and that transition was toward um, more uh, more coordinated attire. So you started to get like one group of people marched in um, suits and ties uh, in order to commemorate the dead. So it was almost as if they were going to a funeral um, hmm. to commemorate people who had been killed by police. Another group wore suffragette white. I think this was a group of transgender activists. But, you know, so they were all wore white, kind of like the suffragettes back in the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and then there was a group who wore their Sunday best. And they actually, when they organized the protest, said, come in your Sunday best um, to make that connection between Black Lives Matter in 2021 and things like the March on Washington in 1963. Hmm. Uh, so they did start to think about it. And one thing that these coordinated approaches do is they demonstrate a level of um, discipline and a level of coordination in the social protest movement that actually might be important to getting the attention of the power structure. Um, one person pointed out that, you know, back in 1963, to organize a large march, you took a real organization with a lot of discipline. You, you needed six months minimum to get it organized. You had to get all the people on site. You, this was a group that had some real power. And anyone in, in, in um, the position of political power knew it. When they see a march and 100,000 people show up, they have to think, whoa, those people are organized and they're not going away. But today you've got social media. And hmm. so in a way you've kind of got springs on your feet. It's great because you can get something organized really quickly. But the people in power also know, yeah, you know, that took a couple of weeks on Facebook or on Twitter to organize. That's not the same. Um, so yeah. well, how do you demonstrate that you've got that organization, um, that you've got that staying power? And maybe clothing is one of the ways to do that, showing that you've gotten people organized um, to get, and, and with the sense of solidarity. It certainly communicates that. Yeah, I never quite made that connection before of how – 
100,000 four decades ago means very different than 100,000 today. It, it communicates a different level of power and organization, as you say. That's yeah. actually quite an interesting point. Maybe we just need to double our numbers now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, and then, you know, with the untrained eye, I did notice Antifa started becoming all black. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And then Proud Boys have their like tan and militia yeah. type attire. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Boogaloos with the Hawaiian T-shirts, um, and then Q- QAnon is is more just like red, white, and blue, like your everyday wear, but with like patriotic f- a flair to it or something. I don't mm-hmm. like do these do these groups and and their dress codes have any kind of um, significance to you as well or? Well, sure. I, I, you do see people gravitating toward some similar types of dress um, to signal some form of solidarity. Now, I don't, you know, some of it seems quite contingent, like the Hawaiian shirts on the Boogaloos. You know, there's no direct um, message being sent by the fact that it's a Hawaiian shirt, except that it's kind of just a meme, out. almost. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost just a meme. Um, you know, with with, with Antifa. Yeah, there there is some kind of post punk look to that that I think does communicate something. You know, you do get the sense that these are people who um, could have, you know, it's it's got a um, post punk cyberpunk sort of look, and I think that communicates something about their ethos and their mindset. Um, the khakis and the polo shirts from some of the the proud boy types that really has a resonance with hitler youth frankly you know when you look at some Hmm. of those people they look an awful lot like the um young people that were organized by the nazi party uh and i doubt that that's enough though (laughs) (laughs) so um i you know we got a couple more minutes here i'd love to hear what are some dramatic examples of at a time like in the past, which was a cultural fashion norm and, or let me put it this way. What would be some historic taboos like fashion taboos that we look at now and can almost laugh at? And then maybe what are some fashion taboos today, which it's really hard Mm. to notice, but if you really pair, if you really pulled away, it's like, okay, that is actually quite ridiculous. Yeah. Well in the past, Oh, well, there's so many, um, there was a period of time <laughs> where um, where a, a woman's – if you could see a woman's ankle, it was uh, scandalous. And, um, and, and the ankle was the, uh, the, uh, the point of erotic fixation. Uh, for centuries, huh. women were required to be draped below the waist. So this is one of the – as fashion developed and you got – um, tailored clothing uh, initially was only for men, and really up until the early 20th century, women wearing trousers, that was scandalous. Um, I've got in the book some examples of a magazine where women in, in trousers were a sexual fetish. Um, and the pants they were wearing, they were just regular old hmm. pants. They're not tight. They're not see-through. There's nothing that you'd think is sexy about them. But because it was a woman wearing pants, oh, it was a huge scandal. And um, they were described as bifurcated women, um, you know, two legs, because normally the woman needed huh. to be draped below the waist. Um, so it, around gender, there were so many um, 
rules and strictures and requirements um things involving hair and who could wear their hair up and who could wear it down um uh today you know the, the number of um high schools for instance that have banned yoga pants for girls i imagine <laughs> we'll look back and think why why you've actually sent someone home for wearing yoga pants um there are high schools that um, i haven't heard of that yeah oh yeah several high schools had um have banned yoga pants um or girls from wearing a, tr- a a shirt that shows the clavicle, the collarbone. Um, you know, there's their dress codes against that. So a lot of the craziest dress codes I think in our environment involve women. They involve putting women in a variety of kind of really double binds um, that can be quite oppressive. And you know, I've spoken to high school girls about this who were protesting their high school dress codes, but they really can be. Um, they can be psychologically quite damaging, uh, as well as just disruptive and a pain in the neck for the girls involved. So, yeah, I imagine we'll look back and wonder what the heck we were thinking about some of those kinds of dress codes. Well, that instantly makes me think of the example you said earlier of in South Carolina, there was legislation where people of color had to wear a very particular type of clothing, in this case, like rough workwear, nothing yeah. else. And that's a way of uh, maintaining power. Yes. And I hear these examples of in the past of women have to wear this and they can't wear that and they can't wear that. It really sounds like the exact same thing of it's a way for the um, uh, men to maintain power over women. And and I almost hear examples of today. It's like, I mean, I'm sure there are examples about men, but I, I, you, you didn't say them. And so it's almost... <laughs> Not as many. Yeah, not as many. I mean, a, a no. man can wear just about anything, and and that we still have things to say. Like when Joe Biden was on the cover when he first became vice president, or Mike Pence uh, when he first became vice president. I doubt there was much commentary about what they were wearing. Um, but then you put Kamala Harris, and everyone's got an opinion whether she can wear those shoes or not or whatever it is. And so that's, that's an interesting thread that it, it, it is so obvious to see in the past and yet it continues to today. Yes. Yes. I think absolutely. I think we're still doing it today that, um, uh, you know, historically women were caught between two requirements. One was to be decorative and the other was to be modest and you know between those two the woman could always be criticized for something either for not being decorative enough and therefore not feminine um or for being immodest um and therefore tempting men into sin and we still basically do the same thing uh in in a variety of ways we still have exactly that same dichotomy um where the women can't win you add to that the fact that um, professional attire, historically and even to a great extent still today, is um, conventional menswear. So the mm-hmm. three-piece suit has developed its menswear. Um, and what do women do when they want to enter a professional domain and dress appropriately? They've got to find a way to come up with a feminized version of menswear. 
Um, of course, mm-hmm. that's a lot harder than wearing something that was designed for men. Um, and you see it constantly, even in places where the where the dress code is relaxed or non-existent. So, you know, I'm here in the Silicon Valley and everybody is, you know, relaxed, wear whatever you want. But um, there's also a lot of judgment around clothing that starts to come out. I have one example in the book where a woman's wearing a pair of high-heeled shoes at a tech conference, and someone takes a picture of her feet and then posts on Twitter, um, these shoes, WTF, and then the hashtag is no brains required. So there's a judgment about what she's wearing. Um, You know, men don't get criticized about their shoes. Um, You know, if you dress too fashionably, then well, then you're superficial or you're wasting your time on things that don't matter. Um, the uh, Marissa Mayer, the the CEO of Yahoo at the time, wore a high fashion uh, outfit because she liked fashion um, on some, in some magazine, and yet it was trashed for looking like she's going to a party or on vacation while everyone else is working. So there was some idea that her clothing signified that she wasn't serious about her job, um, and. You know, then you've got the idea that if you dress in um, too professional a manner, you're, you're behind the times. So uh, Peter Thiel, the um, the entrepreneur, you know, writes, never invest in a company, a tech company where the CEO wears a suit. So you've gone from a dress code where you have to wear a suit to a dress code where you can't wear a suit. Um, and you better know the difference. So a lot of this is about, you know, insider knowledge and acculturation. And if you wear the wrong thing because you don't know, you've shown that you're an outsider or that you're not um, one of us, so to speak. And I think that kind of judgment about clothing can be quite insidious. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting critique of someone saying, oh, man, you spend way too much time on fashion. That's a waste. Well, you know, you could flip that and be like your judgment of what someone else decides to put on their feet is a big waste of your time. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) And And if you really don't care, you wouldn't be wasting your time taking a picture of her feet. Um, (laughs) No, or maybe it's just for the likes. Who knows? Um, (laughs) So to wrap this up, in your view, is... uh, Dress codes today and all these things we talked about currently, are they driving us apart or pulling us together in like the most, of course they're doing both, but yeah. which force is larger in, in your view? Are they more driving us together or driving us apart? I'd say the, um, the they're probably driving us apart more than they're bringing us together if we're talking about the rules and the judgments around dress. Now, in the book, I also use dress codes in a different way, which is the way um, people look to clothing to signify something. Um, and and in that, that can really bring people together. So there are a lot of examples mm-hmm. where people – um, you know, start to dress in a similar way in order to signify their solidarity or their, you know, they're in it. And, and that brings that group of people together. Now, it may also separate them from anyone else. So a lot of the examples that we were talking about, you know, the, the small group gets brought together if you're, um, you, you know, Antifa or Proud Boys or whatever. But it's also signaling, you know, we're apart from everyone else. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's got some of both. I don't think that type of separation is always a bad thing because people need 
um, solidarity in small groups as well. But, you know, when you take examples like people rioting in the Capitol on January 6th or, you know, the Proud Boys or what have you, yeah, those are examples where, you know, it really is driving the country apart. Yeah. Well, Rich, this has been a super fun conversation. If folks want to find more of your work, I mean, we've mentioned the book a bunch, where can they find the book? And then also maybe if you're on social media or if you've got a website or anything like that. Yes, absolutely. So the easiest way, um, if you www.dresscodes, one word, dot org, uh, is my website. And it has a lot of my writing, not just the book on dress codes, but if you click through the links, other things that I've written and other um, other, other venues from the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, things like that. Um, the book is available everywhere. You, you know, Amazon or your independent local bookstore, which I always favor supporting. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, there are also websites like bookshop.org that um, will, you know, will go to independent booksellers to keep those places um, alive and we need them. Well, maybe, you know, if you say dress codes are pulling us apart today, our individual dress codes, maybe you and I should get together. We should propose a national dress code where <laughs> you just have a pair of shorts and pants and you know, it's interesting in the book there there were proposals for national dress codes, civilian no dress way. codes. So, yes, absolutely. Um not only in the United States, but in a lot of countries in Europe. Now they didn't go anywhere, but there were that like every adult citizen or every adult male in some cases, um because these were proposed a while ago, would be would wear a uniform, a national uniform. Crazy. Well, it sounds like you got to go, so I'm going to let oh, you yeah. hook Oh, yeah. Is that on my end? I wasn't sure how that, uh, <laughs> who that was. <laughs> oh, that's just fine. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a really great conversation. Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end, and thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience, and that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week. And that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week. And thank you so much.